Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today's leader is a leader among these leaders, Mayor Nan Whaley. Nan is a mayor's mayor. She fights for a community and for the revitalization of all cities. She's navigated her city through eight incredibly challenging years. We talk about how she did that and the lessons she learned that all leaders can draw from from her experience. We also talk about her passion for government as an instrument for good. Big things are ahead for Nan. Listen to hear why we need her on a bigger stage. Nan Whaley, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's uh, wonderful to talk to you. You're one of my favorite mayors in America right now. Well, thank you. That's awful kind. But you probably say right now after each mayor you talk to, right? <laughs> no, but you, you've, you've held that post for a while. You're, 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 definitely, you're definitely always top tier in my book. <laughs> thank you. That's so nice. <laughs> There's so many issues I want to talk to you about. But before we begin, I feel like we need to address an issue that comes up all too frequently in America, and that's the issue of gun violence. We are uh, two weeks out from uh, shootings in Atlanta and one week out from shootings in Boulder as we uh, record this interview. Uh, You yourself experienced a mass shooting in your community. Can you talk a little bit about how you, as a a leader and a mayor, help navigate your community uh, in the wake of violence like this? Yeah, well, I mean, I think what's so tough, Ryan, is that right now, as we're coming out of COVID, uh, you're going to see probably these mass shootings come back. You didn't, it's one of the things you didn't see as much in, in COVID because people were all not in public spaces. And so now that there's public spaces and people are out and about more, I think they've become like just very all too common. And particularly the famous, you know, Atlanta and Boulder brings it, you know, kind of rearing back to the Dayton community as well. And every community that's gone through this, they, which is just too many of us. And for us in Dayton, it's something that is is like all the other cities where we haven't really seen any sort of movement on common sense gun legislation. We haven't seen really anything change when this is so easy to fix, frankly, you know, with legislators just doing what the public's calling for. A huge majority of the public supports common sense gun legislation, but it's just an example. I think one of the most glaring examples on how the the democracy is is broken. And do you have any ideas of how to move forward on that legislation? You were you were a national advocate on this. You work towards trying to find bipartisan approach. What's the missing piece for us to 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 address and just stop these horrific killings in our communities? Well, I mean, I think we get closer and closer every single cycle, actually. And it's, it's probably, unfortunately, because it's just become so common now that it's affecting so many people. 
it's it's affecting how people are voting, frankly, and it's affecting deci- you know decisions of people in Congress in, in a in a really direct way. So I think we actually get closer every cycle. I think in 2018 uh, that was the first I think time they showed that there was actually more gun sense voters than NRA voters. You know, as their top decision when they do exit polling and ask people what what's of, of top of mind. So we saw that that real switch in 2018. And then in 2020, I think we continue to see an increase of people being elected like Mark Kelly in the Arizona Senate, where this has just had a personal effect on them. And so having those personal leaders that have personally gone through gun violence, I think helps this issue move forward. You know, I'm in Ohio right now, and uh, unfortunately, I don't think that it's going to become like a, it won't be a solve that the state does, you know, the governor at first here, uh, after after Dayton said he was going to do common sense gun legislation, he obviously didn't push it through and then signed actually stand your ground, which, you know, is a heinous bill that makes our communities less safe, not more safe, and just showed just how hollow his words were on this. And so I don't think we'll see real any real movement unless it comes from from Congress, at least for Ohioans. I think there's some states that will get some state movement, but for for us in Ohio, I think it will have to come come from the Capitol. And after your shooting, you know, in the in the weeks, months, and years after the ten people were killed and twenty seven were injured in in Dayton, how did you how did you help the community come to terms with that event and, and heal that event. What's it like being a mayor of a city after one of these horrendous events? Well, I mean, I think there's, uh, there's a couple of things that you have to do with any crisis. And unfortunately we're, you know, we do get like some small training in this uh, from the U S conference of mayors about what to do. And so I think first I would say, communicate, 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 like any crisis you want to, tell what you know and tell what you don't know and be really honest and be willing to communicate regularly with the public. One of the things I didn't realize that was happening, I didn't really understand that it was a national story, the Dayton shooting. And, and that's probably best. I didn't really realize that when we were going through it. And I really thought I was just talking to the reporters and not, I didn't realize they were taking the press, the press conferences live on TV and showing them you know, front to back, at least on the local, like local news, they'd break and just show them. So I really didn't understand just how many people were directly seeing the press conferences. It's something I shared with mayors since then. Like, you know, there's just, there's just such an opportunity for direct conversation now because of the way our media works that that's a little different than just telling the reporters and the reporters telling, you know, the mass folks. And so obviously that communication is really, really key second thing for us was, and Bill Peduto, who had the, um, the mayor of Pittsburgh, who had the tree of life, deadly shooting, you know, called me that morning and was like, you know, families and victims first, always think everything through their lens and it's really great advice. And so really, you know, making sure we didn't, you know, say the names of the victims until we had found the family members and, you know, not like giving them that space and then trying to get the names to the community as quickly as possible. But we did not, I mean, this the idea of a family member finding out that someone they love is dead via TV or internet was just something we could not have happened. We were successful in, in getting to them before that. And then, you know, this was a public space in Dayton where the shooting happened. And so 
you know, I want it in it with a lot of local small businesses. And so we didn't want people not to know that this is their space. And so police and fire did an amazing job cleaning the site that day so we could have a vigil at that site that evening. They didn't want it to be roped off for days to be this place where people can't come because it was our space. And that's one of the concerns I think these shootings have is that you not only, you know, you have such a profound sense of loss of life, but then you have a loss of, of community. And so I, I can't tell you just how amazing police and fire were, you know, to make sure that they got everything they needed, were able to clean the scene, and we were able to come to that site that evening. Wow, that's just something you don't think about in the context. And certainly, I mean, certainly in Boulder, they're going to have to figure out how to sort of return the space to the community in a way that's right. cognizant of the victims and uh, and also honors honors it as a public space. Right. I mean, I think that was probably the most powerful part of that day for me was the, I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of people coming that evening to hold each other, to cry together, to yell together, to demand together, to pray together. Uh, it was a short, it was only around 35 minutes, but it was incredibly powerful of the community. And I think it was key to our ability to heal. And we're not fully healed. I'm not saying that, but I think that vigil that night was an important part of that. And that's where this cry for do something came out of the of the streets. And, you know, I really felt that's what Dayton was declaring. And unfortunately, they haven't seen any action since August 4th, 2019. And I think that's I think that's what's hard for leaders of communities and victims' families is that, you know, you want you want this tragic event to mean something right to at least something good to come out of something so horrific and what's so frustrating and so appalling about our government is nothing changes even with this incredible loss of life and community and family that is it is so so frustrating and just angering right like it just mm-hmm. at some point it just yeah you just are so so angry that this keeps happening in, in this country when, when, as you said, it is a, it's a solvable problem. Yeah. It does not have to be this way. Yeah. And you know, if that was the only crisis that you faced as mayor, that's a major crisis mm-hmm. yet you faced white supremacist rallies and tornadoes, COVID and economic crisis mm-hmm. efforts to now address racial injustice. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what the last couple years have been like for you and uh, the lessons you've learned. <laughs> you're making, for... uh, Brian, you're making the job sound so glamorous. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> we'll get to the good stuff really uh, soon. Uh, yeah, so 2019 and 2020 have been incredibly difficult in Dayton. 2020 has been incredibly difficult for the whole country, right? So between the pandemic and the, the civil unrest for the demand for racial justice is happening in every community. And so honestly, I think, you know, a lot of mayors I've talked to, you know, tell me like 2020 was the hardest year they've had to deal with. And to me, 2019 was so deeply personal. The things that were happening in Dayton felt like they were happening only to us. And so it felt very lonely at times Uh, where 2020, it was like, oh, everybody's in this, this pocket. So we have a lot of friends that are dealing with the same issues, which, you know, was helpful in moving through the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I think 
we used to tease, we, we tease my staff and I tease in Dayton that we're really good at managing crisis. And, you know, we're a community that's been in crisis for about two years, really it's through no fault of Dayton's, you know, own. It's these national issues that have laid to bear locally, whether it be gun violence or, you know, we had these two dozen or dozen and a half tornadoes rip through the urban center. You know, tornadoes aren't supposed to go through urban centers, but because of the extreme weather, you know, even a place like Dayton is experiencing some really tough weather challenges that are more extreme because of climate change. And so, you know, again, something that didn't have anything, it wasn't like specific to Dayton, but it was a national and actually worldwide issue. And then the the hate clan folks actually came over from another state to tell us their feelings. And so again, not Daytonians that we had to had to deal with. So these are the challenges of leadership right now. And I think you know, there's no more important time to be a local leader, but I don't think, I think there's no, it's, there's no harder time than to be a local leader right now. What mayors have gone through across this country, because until, until Biden became president, you know, we had a real lack of federal leadership in 2019 and 2020 with really big issues. And that made it a very lonely job for mayors across the country and local leaders in general. But, you know, particularly I'll speak about mayors because you know, there was no partner in it. And I I was, I've been mayor for eight years now. And I, you know, was part of when Obama was president and how that relationship with the White House was, was really close and, you know, like welcoming and sharing of issues and ways that the federal government could help local communities. And, you know, when the Trump administration came in, I think the mayors went to Washington, D.C., and they sent a press release welcoming us, threatening to put 20-some mayors in jail based on their position on immigration. So, I mean, obviously a very different time for us mayors. And then these challenges Dayton came to have in 19 and then the tough 2020 for everybody. It's been the past two years have been like 10 years compared to the, the first the first five, which is so interesting. It is. And I, yeah, I tell people the same thing. I, I was in local government in the Obama administration, and the Trump administration, just night and day. We had major fires, for, uh, forest fires all summer long. Right. Thousands of homes lost. And we couldn't get anyone from the administration on the phone, much less like there was questions about whether it would even be declared a disaster. It was just it was so hard to try to address these big global issues on your own right? Uh, without the resources of the federal government. Or just even the check-in, right? I think that's the other thing that's, that's so difficult. It, it, it feels very lonely. It feels completely different now, Ryan. I mean, the, the day I, I teased Julia Rodriguez, who's the head of IGA, like I think the minute that the Biden administration came on, I think I was on a Zoom like every other day with her. So, you know, the connection between the White House and, and local governments is strong and certainly with the rescue package, having a the state and local, you know, just a completely different mindset. And, you know, uh, President Biden came to Ohio this past week and, I, you know, got the chance to thank him for the rescue package. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm the incoming president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And like President Biden does, you know, he went on a soliloquy about how much he loves local government and how mayors are the key to this work and how, you know, he looks forward to continuing the partnership. And I know he's like completely authentic and real on it. You know, I know this partnership is going to be real and deep and, and, you know, and bipartisan too, I think is, you know, as you know, this, this local government stuff, a lot of times doesn't, doesn't have a partisanship to it. There's no Democrat or Republican pothole. There's just a pothole. So. 
absolutely that needs to that needs to be filled so yeah, you know so yeah, yeah and we'll yeah hopefully we'll just start getting it done uh with federal with federal assistance or at least not with uh federal government throwing up barriers making it right. harder can you talk a little bit you are a, you're a huge advocate for the relief package can you talk about what that mm-hmm. means for Dayton and what you think it means for for cities all across the country Dayton's had a tough not just a tough couple of years, but the past, you know, half decade has been very difficult because of deindustrialization, automation, and really, really bad trade deals for Ohio. And that has, you know, affected our wages and loss of job numbers. And so, you know, because of that, that means that, you know, our community has less money to do really the important work of running a city and then add COVID with less people. So during the 09 and 10 recession, we lost uh, hundreds of jobs from the city organization. And so we've already been a pretty bare bones organization. And when COVID happened, you know, we had to, we furloughed a quarter of our workforce at the beginning. And then we 102 took voluntary separation out of a, a, a staff of around 1800. And then to get through 21, we said, you know, no police class, no fire class this coming year. We'll just attrit the retirements and just have smaller classes. So for, for the practical at the very beginning, you know, really being able to have a police and fire class and reload some of these jobs that we lost during the pandemic is super key to the organization itself. You know, of course, waiting to see what the treasury rules and guidelines are for these dollars. But I can tell you that the impacts of the pandemic have, you know, just exasperated already tough issues in our community. And that's what I think is exciting about the American Rescue Plan is it's talking about how we really do build back better. Okay, what are the thoughtful ways that we can deal with eviction and, you know, keep people housed so we don't have to, you know, number one, have as much transience, take care of, you know, kids. And and it's, and that's and that's a racial justice issue in, in addition here in, in Dayton. You know, most of the people that are evicted in our community are Black women. So, you know, how do we use these dollars to really keep people in their homes, which these dollars will do, and then help them have a stronger life. I mean, I'm just, you know, of course, we did, like to me, you know, the wage issue is an enormous issue here in Dayton. People, the median income of my community is around $28,000. It's very, very poor. Uh, and it's mostly people are working. They're just not getting paid very much here. And so, you know, I think that's something that down the road will be, I think, really important is getting, getting a real minimum wage. But the rescue plan is incredibly key for this, stopgap for us right now. And the, the thing I'm actually most excited about it that I think will be the most transformational for Dayton is the child tax credit. You know, that every person that has a child under six years old gets $300 a month. I mean, that will be transformative. We passed universal pre-K in Dayton in 2016 and have made great strides in that work. But what we have found is you know, our moms just need a little more money, like the car breaks down and they can't afford to fix the car. They don't have any extra dollars to do that. So their children don't get to preschool, right? Or they don't have, again, this, this edge, of, edge of housing issue. So that money will lift half of the children out of poverty. I'm, you know, the number of children that will be lifted out of poverty in Dayton will probably be closer to 70%. It will be transformative for my community. Yeah, I agree. I think that's going to be the thing that people look back in a decade or two and say that was an incredible investment and social program that that transformed families and and American lives. 
with a with a relatively small investment, uh, you can help so many families, and the and then the momentum builds from there. Yes, it did. It did. So it's just it's just very very exciting. So. I know it's only for one year, so we'll have to have the fight to keep that going. But that, you know, pulling the children out of poverty, I think, makes transformational lives for the future of my community in 10 to 15 years as well. So very, very exciting. One of the things I've always appreciated about your leadership on the national level is the way you talk about mid-sized cities. We often spend a lot of time Mm -hmm. talking about big cities and talking about rural America and mid-sized cities where most Americans live aren't part of that conversation. Can you talk a little bit about why you think it's important and then how, as uh, head of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, you're going to try to to get mid-sized cities into that conversation? Yes. Yeah, so thank you for that. I, I think, and you know, and again, the Trump, uh, Trump administration did this a lot. When they talk about cities, they talk about the big guys. And like, look, we look to the big guys for great leadership and great ideas, but but most of the people living in this country are living in cities like Dayton. Uh, and, and those are the cities that are actually having some of the tougher challenges because they don't have as much funding. You know, it's not, it's not as big as the, as the bigger cities to be able to, you know, move money around to provide services. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the time, at least in Dayton, you know, we have a bit of a chip on our shoulder because, you know, people call us flyover country or, you know, you've lost all of this, this work. And, you know, and typically really that's most, most cities in America are more like Dayton than they are like Seattle. That challenge is, I think, what's fueling some of the anger that's going on in our country is that a lot of these mid-sized cities and the people that live in them do feel forgotten and ignored. And so I think it's really important for their leaders to have a voice to to have policy folks think about these communities instead of just the the big shiny ones uh, because I think if you find models for good work that's scalable in these communities it can be replicated much easier we can be great laboratories of of ideas to you know with you know partnerships with anchor institutions we steal each other's ideas really really fast because you know there's so many of us I think that that's an important context, both to the national narrative, but also I think it helps mayors and their political power as well so we can get what we need from our cities. I think you saw that when we were doing the rescue plan for the conference of mayors, you know, the co-chairs, President Fisher of Louisville put two of us in charge, myself and uh, the Republican mayor of Arlington, Texas, Jeff Williams, you know, two cities that aren't really discussed a lot in the national narrative. And have very different situations, but still have need. And, you know, for us to be able to share that, I think, number one, brought more mayors to the table that were bipartisan in spirit. And number two, you know, really put a different face on what state and local needed, what the needs were, instead of it being just, you know, New York, L.A., Chicago, Houston kind of story. And I think that's, I think that's really important for us as we try to build the power of cities, which is something I'm passionate about in our advocacy with the federal government. Absolutely. And it's, you know, you're right. The mid-sized cities is where uh, you can you can try things. And if it works, it will be replicated across the country. And in fact, a plurality of Americans, really. But one of the things that's hard is that a city, a medium-sized city, 
to compete for federal dollars or to, to, to get those federal dollar programs or, or private philanthropy, it's like you don't have the staff to be able to, to go out and, and get the dollars in the same way. And then you're right. left behind. And it's like a, it's a, it's a reinforcing situation that, that we need to break out of. Right. But it's like, I mean, I completely agree. And, you know, like Dayton isn't a place that has a lot of philanthropy or a lot of, you know, established wealth, even like Pittsburgh, right? Like I always tell Mayor Peduto that, you know, I'd love to have some of his institutional wealth or even Cleveland actually has a lot more wealth than Dayton does, you know? So, so when it can get done in Dayton or it can get done in Akron or Fort Wayne, I'll go through and name all Midwestern cities, but Hartford, Connecticut, like when it can get done in those kind of places, we, the rest of us take note because it's not like they have a fancy sponsor or, you know, something that we can't do. And so I think that's why, you know, really sharing these kind of practices is something that I think that, that really helps the replication of good, good quality work in our communities. So that's what's exciting about it. Can you talk a little bit about what, in your view, the Democratic Party as a political party needs to do to connect with some of these, as you say, the the flyover cities or these these medium sized cities that that are not getting resourced and and you know in in some cases turning away from the Democratic Party after years of support. What in your view does the party need to do to to, to reconnect and build a constituency out of these mid sized cities again? Well I, I think it's a, a lot of issue of style more than anything else. And, um, and look, look, I, I firmly believe that people vote smart people and people that aren't smart, like all people vote out of emotion rather than rational rationality. And I, and I know some people like to think they're voting rationally, but I don't think that's true. I think people vote how they feel, um, more than anything. And I think feeling is the most important part of elections. And I think the challenge for us as Democrats is we have a lot of very smart people that are Democrats. I mean, obviously, if you're if you're smart, you're obviously going to be a Democrat, you know, <laughs> exactly. um, it's a given. So, uh, right. So our challenge is, is that we have in our party. The other thing we have are people that want to tell each other how smart they are. And that is a real problem in places like where I come from and where I live. I mean, number one, I don't even like it. Okay. And I'm a strong Democrat, but I I get annoyed by it. And so I'm always like, well, if I'm getting annoyed about it, imagine like what somebody that's an independent or a little further that we're trying to change hearts and minds, they really don't like it. And so I think one of the challenges our party has is I call it like smartest person in the room syndrome. We want to just share our brilliance. And in the way we do it can be condescending. And that doesn't make people feel good. This is an example of when we decided to tell people that voted for Trump that they were conned, which is implies they're too dumb to understand what they're doing. Again, doesn't help our cause. I think that's really the biggest thing that's going, going against us, frankly, is we have a tendency to not be nice. And, and I think... I think it's be, and I mean, I think I, I'll, I'll just share this one story. A neighbor of mine who's a big Democrat who watches a lot of MSNBC said to me, can you believe the people in Kentucky that voted for Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell? What were they thinking? And I was like, well, they're probably thinking that Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul don't call them dumb every day. That's what they're thinking. 
I do understand that anger. I mean, nobody, nobody likes to be called stupid. And I think we have a tendency to do that to a lot of voters a lot of times. Or, you know, this, you know, this trope of, I can't believe these, these people, and then air quotes, vote against their self-interest. They're really not. They're really not. Because their self-interest is that they are valued as humans and that they have worth and that there is a place for them in this new economy. And a lot of times we don't show it. So that's, I think, our, our biggest problem with reaching out to voters in, in my neck of the woods. I think that's incredibly insightful and good advice. I want to ask you, speaking of arrogance, I, I don't know if you're going to remember this, but you and I were in a meeting probably four <laughs> years ago, and Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh, some somebody there uh, who was a very successful businessman started talking to us about how you know how we should run our cities, and if only we did A, B, and C, everything would be fixed. And you blew the roof off the room uh, in, in your explanation for how different it is and how complex it is to run a government in a community, not saying that we can't learn things from business, but that we need to, it, it's, it's, a different, it's a different experience, a different, different qualities are needed. Right. And, you know, I think for our listeners, do you want to, do you want to give a little uh, explanation for why the yeah. j- just do this is not a good uh, approach to running a, a major U.S. city. Yeah, I mean, I, that is, the, you know, that was like the 90s or early 2000s trope. If government was run like a business, that dro- that drove me crazy too. Uh, you know, and you're, I get dangerous sometimes on these things. So uh, um, <laughs> I'll say this: like th- that whole idea, like a business gets to decide who its customers are, right? They can decide who they want to serve. A city or a government does not get that choice, right? They're, they're serving everybody in those boundaries. They shouldn't. And if they are making those choices, they're not running their government well because the whole center, center idea of government is it really does the work that number one, nobody else will do because there is not a market for it, but it must be done to create market. And, and so this whole idea, and I'm not saying like there are things, you know, to learn from, you know, business development, but this, this whole idea that if it's just like a business, I can run government, I just don't buy. And I mean, really the only, the only person, and I could probably, I have to think some more, but I do, there are, there are leaders that are business leaders that are also good uh, government leaders, like I, I think Bloomberg was a good business leader, great business leader, and he was a great mayor. But it has more to do with leadership than I learned what I needed to know in business, because there, it's a different, it's a different kind of work. It's not about profits. It's not about shareholders. And I know they want to make this connection of like the citizens are the shareholders, but your citizens, again, it's not just about a bottom line at the end of the day. It's about providing services. And sometimes you have to provide services to people that have no money, have nothing. But providing that service helps the entire collective. And so I just, I really dislike that, that view. And I think it simplifies the work and the profession of public service. And it also implies, again, that pu- people that choose to do public service are in some ways dumb. And I obviously take great offense to that because I find 
what I find in, in, in the public sector is particularly in state and local government. I can't really speak to federal. I've never been in that system. But in state and local government, you have people that will get paid less, work longer just because they believe in the mission and, and know that there's no bonus at the end. There's no big payout at the end besides a better community. And that is a really, really special group of people that decide to do this work. There are people, you know, that are doing this work that go up, you know, get up every morning and don't know if they're going to make it home. L- l- rationally don't know if they're going to make it home. That's the kind of workers that we have doing this. And I think that it's not something that you can really just run like a business. I love that explanation. Uh, it's very similar to the one that you gave in that room that day. There was a few fewer curse words this time uh, <laughs> than, than I remember uh, a couple of years I try, ago. But I try, yeah, I try not to curse on uh, on podcasts, but you know, I am a famed cursor in other rooms. So, <laughs> <laughs> can we talk a little bit about? What attracted you to public service, your decision to to first run for city commission and then your decision to run for mayor? You know, where does where does this passion come from? I, I was actually a chemistry major in college. You know, I'm a first generation college graduate. My brother, my parents went to college. They did not graduate. My brother and I went and, you know, they were very focused on us finishing and focused on us having a a, a skilled, you know, work. So like we weren't really allowed to pick liberal arts and that's pretty typical of first generation college graduates. I've noticed it's like, well, you're going to get a degree so you can go make money and making money is like to my parents was like science and business. So my brother was a finance major and I was a chemistry major. And I, you know, by my third year, I really realized like I was not going to do this chemistry. It's, you know, most of the folks that are in chemistry, I have a more tendency to be introvert. I'm an extreme extrovert. I, you know, would get bored with it, frankly. And so um, when uh, I was at the University of Dayton, my parents also, uh, my dad was a union steward for UAW in Indiana, and um, my mom was a local elected official. And when I went to Ohio, which they were not keen about me coming over here, uh, they said, uh, well, you know, they decide presidents. So you should really volunteer for the reelection of Bill Clinton because he's the only reason why you get to go to college anyway, because he had opened and expanded student loans. This is when I was in the sweet spot of college, you know, college was so affordable, but the student loans had opened it up so we could afford and I could afford and my brother could afford to go to school. And so my parents were always very strong and very good about explaining to us how who was elected affected our lives. And I'll tell this one quick story. My very first memory as a child was my p- mother being upset when I was, uh, I was four. And you know, I, I don't know, in this, like in the seven, you know, 80, 1980, it's like um, those, I can even see the couch. It was like the, those plaid couches from the seventies and, you know, um, very unattractive uh, furniture. I know, yes, and, I know those you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm sitting there and it's my first memory. And it's because my mother was so upset and it was the Carter Reagan debate. And she was like so upset that, you know, I think any kind of emotional, that's usually your first memory. And um, I was like, well, why? She kept on saying, this is bad. This is so bad. And I said, well, why is this bad, mommy? And she said, oh, well, because Ronald Reagan is going to win the election. And um, that's going to be terrible for our family. And, and, you know, I, I didn't think it, I mean, I was 
four. So I remember this and my dad was, he was an iron worker and went inside to work at General Motors and uh, he was laid off in 81, you know, during that recession. And so we're like six, my dad's laid off. He's painting like neighbor's houses and just doing what he can to get by. And we're, my brother and I are at dinner. I think I'm like six or seven and my mom's serving dinner. And she says, uh, she says, do you know why there's no meat on this table? And like, honestly, Ryan, I didn't notice there was no meat. I'm like six or seven. And so I said, well, no. And she said, because Ronald Reagan took the meat off this table (laughs) and like, she's so dramatic about everything. So, I I mean, I swear to God, the woman, like if, if it was raining, it was Ronald Reagan's fault. Like (laughs) we couldn't go on vacation, Ronald Reagan. I was terrified of Ronald Reagan. Okay. So this has always been like, they've just been very good. My parents were always very good of equating like, you know, when, you know, leadership has consequences and it has consequences for our family. So that was how I was raised. So I have to say that's probably where this all comes from. But when I went to college, I started the University of Dayton College Democrats from there and started volunteering and loved campaigns because they're finite. You know, you have a day and that's it. And that's election day. And really uh, started volunteering and fell in love with it. Never thought I'd run for office. A typical woman had to be asked when I was around 26, Emily's List, which is the group that works to elect pro-choice women, Democratic women, they came and asked me to run for Congress, which seems kind of insane. They wanted someone that was young that had no baggage because we had a first-term congressman here. And I went and like, and they just said to me, well, all you'll need to do is raise a million dollars. You know, I'm working (laughs) class. I was like, a million dollars? Like, making $20,000 a year. What, you know? So, but that process of them like coming to see me made me realize I wanted to run for city council. And I like dutifully emailed them and said like, thank you so much. I'm not going to run for Congress. I'm going to run for city commission. We call it here. And of course they were like, well, we don't care about city commission, you know, but I ran as city commission. I was 29. And so I always thank Emily's list because I never would, even though I was working on campaigns, never was thinking about running for myself which is one of the the things we know about women is they always have to be asked. And so I served eight years on commission and then we had a mayor that was honestly just terrible. And there were four other commissioners and myself and we decided like one of us had to run. And I was like, well, I want to run. I was the youngest one and I was the only woman. And they were like, we agree. You're the one that should run. So I ran against the incumbent and beat him. And then ran four years and was unopposed. So, which is the first time that's ever happened in the history of Dayton. So that's how I got into this work. And I'm super grateful for my mom, you know, equating every decision to who the president of the United States was. And um, my parents, I mean, really, I mean, I think, I think they are right that elections have consequences. And we have seen that so starkly between 2016 and 2020. It's so funny you say that because I distinctly remember my father uh, who graduated from UC Berkeley when Ronald Reagan was governor. So Ronald Reagan had signed his diploma. So my (laughs) father refused to hang the diploma because Ronald Reagan had signed it. Um. (laughs) (laughs) We were, we were raised, we were raised so well. And I mean, what's so funny about these stories, Ryan, is like, you know, Ronald Reagan for the, like the conservatives, you know, they love him and he's considered so great. I mean, he is considered like the devil in my parents' house. So, Right. It's so funny. And he'd be so um, too moderate for today's Republican Party, <laughs> I know, uh, I know. which is uh, stunning. To wrap up, you have been 
as you mentioned, a tremendous leader in Dayton and ran, you know, got reelected unopposed. You've been a national leader for cities, but you've decided not to seek reelection. And can you talk a little bit about that decision and maybe what's next? Bittersweet decision for me. I love this city. I I do love being mayor, but I've been at City Hall now for 16 years. And so I've been basically, you know, grown up there. And I really think as I was considering what to do next, I really think it's time for Date to have some new ideas. And I've endorsed my candidate for mayor who's terrific. He's a, he's a fellow city commissioner and an African-American leader in our community, which I think is really important right now in this moment. And I'm excited to see what new ideas come from new leadership. I mean, he's obviously an ally. We've worked together on this work for the past eight years together, but I think he'll, you know, he'll lead differently. And I think that will be great for Dayton too. You know, I tell folks, people have been so kind in Dayton. I mean, so supportive and so nice. I I tease other folks that, you know, people should think about like lame ducking themselves more often because people are so nice when you decide (laughs) that you're not going to run. Like I was going door to door for the candidate that we're running, um, you know, supporting for mayor. And um, they were like so nice on the doors. And I was like, I don't think I would get this nice if I was like running again, you know, as but it was, they've been just really, really, really gracious and really wonderful. It's a great city. But yeah, I mean, we're thinking about running statewide and, We'll be making an announcement in the coming and probably in the coming four weeks about it. You know, Ohio is a tough state for Democrats, but it's a state I'm committed to. And I do believe, like like we talked earlier, that getting the message right, because I do think Democrats are doing really great things for working people. Joe Biden just did tremendous and the Democrats in the House and Senate just did a tremendous tremendous action for working people in my community and and people across the state of Ohio, but we can't tell them we're, they're dumb when we're doing it, you know? So I think, you know, getting the right message in Ohio is, I think, key not only for Ohio's future, but for the future of the country. So stay tuned. I'll be on pins and needles. <laughs> um, I can't wait to support you in whatever you do. And I just want to thank you for your leadership, not only for your city, but for all of us in local government. You've been a real voice for 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 not only your community but for our communities and i'm grateful for that i'm really honored thank you so much and thank you for your leadership and doing great work with the new deal you know it's a great organization and talk about a place that we steal ideas from definitely the new dealers so thank you it's it's an organization of thieves of uh of good ideas right thank you nan and we look forward to hearing your about your future plans and supporting you in whatever way we can thanks a lot ryan have a great one Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. (laughs) 